In the eerie moments between dusk and dawn, along the hollowed hospital hallways, you hear a voice of reckoning. Code blue. I repeat, code blue. Your moderately caffeinated cranium jogs up, thinking about what might be going on with this patient. On the surgical floor, you have a patient who is tachycardic, hypotensive, febrile, and sweating buckets. Today, our patient is in shock, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled, You Put Me in a State of Shock. All right, time for a minute physiology. Our organs are perfused with oxygenated blood pumped through the arteries by the heart. They return deoxygenated blood through our veins back to the heart for reoxygenation by the lungs. The heart's chambers are a tank of blood, and it pumps this blood out through pipes or arteries to the organs, until this blood is returned through pipes or through the veins back to the heart to refill its chambers. Shock occurs when the flow of oxygenated blood through the pipes is insufficient to meet the organ's requirements for metabolic function. To understand how this happens, we need to look at the tank, the pump, and the pipes involved in supplying organs with oxygenated blood. These functions will be explained through the four main types of shock, hypovolemic, cardiogenic, obstructive, and vasoplegic or distributive shock. When the heart has less blood volume in the tank, there is less to send to the organs. This is called hypovolemic shock, which can include fluid losses from hemorrhage, gastrointestinal losses such as from vomiting or diarrhea, renal losses from diuretics, decreased fluid intake, and third spacing of fluid into the interstitial space. The heart pump can also work less well than expected because the function of the pump machinery is affected, known as cardiogenic shock or because the blood is not able to flow through the pipes, known as obstructive shock. Causes of cardiogenic shock include myocardial infarction, arrhythmia, valvular disease, as well as myocarditis. Causes of obstructive shock can include tension pneumothorax, cardiac tamponade, and pulmonary embolism. Finally, the pipes that distribute the blood to the organs may lose their tone and become leaky, known as vasoplegic or distributive shock. This can happen, for instance, in severe sepsis, where bacterial endotoxins and systemic cytokines can contribute to vasoplegia and decrease systemic vascular resistance. Vasoplegic shock can also happen during anaphylaxis, when the body responds to an allergen by decreasing systemic vascular resistance. Disruption to the nervous system's input to the blood vessels may also decrease the normal autonomically regulated tone. Across all causes of shock, one of the cardinal signs is a fall in blood pressure. By understanding some physiology and one simple equation, you can work through the differential diagnosis and treat shock. So first, remember, blood pressure equals cardiac output times systemic vascular resistance, or SVR. And if you recall that cardiac output is related to heart rate, stroke volume, and cardiac contractility, you can then understand why the blood pressure may be falling. So. When the blood pressure falls, think about if it's a cardiac output problem of the pump or the tank, or systemic vascular resistance problem of the pipes. The end outcome of all types of shock is the same. End organs, including the brain, heart, lungs, liver, and kidney, 
receive less oxygenated blood than required to support each organ's metabolic needs. Stepping back to high school physiology, this means that cells in these end organs stop participating in oxidative dephosphorylation, one of the steps of aerobic respiration. Our organs instead start anaerobic respiration, producing smaller amounts of ATP and producing lactic acid as a byproduct. Lactic acid and its dehydroxylated form, lactate, then begin to gradually accumulate in the blood, exceeding the amount that the liver is usually able to clear. Therefore, one of the main laboratory measurements consistent with shock is an elevated serum lactate. All right, so now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. As with any patient, you should always start by assessing whether your patient is stable or not. Before obtaining vital signs, you can quickly assess how sick your patient is by their general appearance. Is your patient alert and oriented or drowsy and confused? Is their breathing labored or are they breathing comfortably? On circulation assessment, do you notice your patient to be diaphoretic, tremulous, with cold and clammy extremities, or warm and flushed? Next, what are their vitals? Patients in shock will be hypotensive, with some compensating with tachycardia. Your patients may also be febrile, suggestive of an infectious source or sepsis. If the blood pressure is low, your first step should be to restore their blood pressure while also thinking about the underlying process. This is usually done by giving a fluid bolus. If you suspect that your patient is in shock, they may also need to be transferred to a monitored setting, such as the ICU or the resuscitation bay in your emergency department. They will require cardiac monitoring, regular blood pressure, oxygen monitoring, and ideally one-to-one nursing attention if able. Next, you'll want to assess your patient's IV access. How many points of IV access does your patient have, and what size? Larger bore catheters have smaller numbers, such as 14 to 16 gauge catheters, while smaller bore catheters have larger numbers, such as 18 to 22 gauge catheters. Is your access peripheral or central, such as a central line or a pick line? IV fluids or transfusions can be given much faster in larger IVs, so it is important to have two large bore IVs when resuscitating patients. Moreover, central access lines, which are inserted in the jugular, subclavian, or femoral veins, can be used to administer fluid rapidly and to administer vasopressor safely. In patients who are minimally conscious or whom rapid IV access is emergently required but is challenging to secure, intraosseous lines can also be used and take only a few seconds to place. We will discuss treatment a bit later in this podcast, but once your patient is acutely stabilized, you can then obtain a history from the patient, the chart, the patient's nurse, and or their family or loved ones. Your questions will be focused on the type of shock you suspect. So think about the possible cause. Is it from an empty tank, a defective pump, or leaky pipes? In hypovolemic shock, you might ask whether the patient has had any recent bleeding, if there's any history of melina or bright red blood parectum, or a history of coagulopathy. You'll want to assess for other losses as well, such as GI or renal losses. In cardiogenic shock, you want to ask if there is or was any chest pain or pressure, shortness of breath, previous arrhythmia, or cardiac risk factors. On examination, you can look at the JVP, assess for evidence of extra heart sounds or new murmurs, crackles when auscultating the lungs, 
and if skilled at point-of-care ultrasound, complete a bedside echo to look directly at the heart. In obstructive shock, you want to identify risk factors for venous thromboembolic disease, such as an active malignancy, prolonged immobilization, or recent major surgery. On exam, you can listen for absent breath sounds, indicating a possible tension pneumothorax, or possibly muffled heart sounds and a high JVP, suggesting potentially a pericardial effusion, which can result in cardiac tamponade. Once again, point-of-care ultrasound can also be helpful here to look for signs of tension pneumothorax or a large pericardial effusion. In vasoplegic or distributive shock from sepsis, you may want to ask for evidence of infections such as recent sick contacts, fever, symptoms of pneumonia, urinary tract infections, or recent surgeries with wounds. Further, if you are thinking about anaphylaxis, you should focus your history on the presence of any triggers or new medications where antibiotics are the most common cause and look for an urticarial rash, swollen lips, or swollen tongue. On to our workup. For all causes of shock, you want to assess the function of affected organs and the severity of supply and demand imbalance. You will want to obtain a CBC, liver and renal function test, as well as a blood gas and serum lactate. Next, you will want to direct your follow-up investigations towards the suspected cause of shock. If you are suspecting hemorrhagic shock, consider calling a gastroenterologist for an urgent gastroscopy to assess for upper GI causes of bleed, such as peptic ulcer disease or colonoscopy for evidence of lower GI causes, such as diverticular bleeding or an intraluminal malignancy. Also consider obtaining abdominal imaging, as patients can rapidly accumulate large volumes of blood in the retroperitoneal space without significant symptoms. Before sending any patient for further imaging, ensure that they are hemodynamically stable to undergo imaging. Next, if you are suspecting cardiogenic shock, ask for an ECG to look for signs of ischemia or arrhythmia. Add serial troponins to assess for acute coronary syndrome and nt proBNP to see if there is any evidence of underlying ventricular strain suggestive of heart failure. For obstructive shock, you want to order a chest x-ray to rule out tension pneumothorax. POCUS can also help you identify pneumothorax in the acute setting as well. If you are suspecting a pulmonary embolism, you should order a CT pulmonary angiogram. Lastly, for basoplegic septic shock, you should order a full septic workup, including a CBC to check for leukocytosis, blood cultures from all lines as well as peripherally, urine cultures, and maybe even sputum cultures for patients with underlying structural respiratory disease. In patients with symptoms suspicious for meningitis, such as headache, nuchal rigidity, or altered mental status, you may also want to perform a lumbar puncture and send the CSF sample for cell count and culture as well. Additional investigations, such as a chest X-ray or CT abdomen, should also be ordered on the basis of your clinical suspicion. That was a lot. So just to summarize, remember that you have four main types of shock, hypovolemic, cardiogenic, obstructive, and vasoplegic and distributive shock. Each of these comes with its own differential, which we just went through. And now we're going to talk about management. As mentioned earlier, you want to secure good intravenous access with large bore peripheral IVs and or a central line to administer vasopressors. You also want to ensure that your patient is connected to cardiac, blood pressure, and oxygenation monitors. Next, you want to start volume resuscitation. 
In nearly all types of shock, we begin with IV boluses of crystalloid fluids such as normal saline or Ringer's lactate. A usual dose is a 500 ml bolus, which can be repeated several times. This should be given quickly, over 10 to 15 minutes. If the patient is refractory to fluid, meaning you've given 2 to 3 liters of fluid and there is no improvement in their blood pressure or urine output, you should then follow with the initiation of vasopressors, such as norepinephrine, to target a mean arterial pressure above 65 millimeters of mercury. Now, given our differential and the four types of shock, there are treatment strategies tailored to each subtype of shock. This concept is referred to as source control. You need to identify the source of shock and fix it. For instance, if you suspect hemorrhagic shock, you should replace blood loss with blood transfusions and possibly coagulation factors to reverse an underlying coagulopathy. If the bleeding is arising from an upper GI source, such as a peptic ulcer, an urgent gastroscopy may be needed for definitive source control to stop the bleeding. If the bleeding is from the liver or the retroperitoneum, then you may need to call interventional radiology for consideration of immediate vessel embolization. If you suspect cardiogenic shock from an acute myocardial infarction, this patient needs to be urgently transferred for a cardiac angiogram for potential stenting or percutaneous coronary intervention. Similarly, for patients with life-threatening arrhythmias, urgent defibrillation or cardioversion may be required. For obstructive shock from a pneumothorax, a chest tube is required for source control. In pericardial tamponade, a pericardiocentesis might be needed. And for pulmonary embolism causing persistent hypotension, you might need to consider administration of intravenous systemic thrombolysis. Catheter-directed thrombolysis and thrombectomy can be discussed with a multidisciplinary team depending on the case. If you suspect septic shock, broad-spectrum IV antibiotics, ideally within one hour from the time of your assessment, as well as appropriate fluid resuscitation, can save lives. Moreover, you need to ensure that there are no uncontrolled organic sources of infection, such as abscesses, necrotic or inflamed tissue, as well as mechanical surfaces at risk of infectious seating, such as ICDs or pacemakers, that might require eventual removal. In anaphylactic shock, you should administer epinephrine 0.3 mg intramuscularly and provide supportive therapies with diphenhydramine and corticosteroids. Time for a Medicine Minute. If you were to ask an intensivist in 2023 which vasopressor they would start as first line for a patient in undifferentiated shock, nearly all of them would tell you to start norepinephrine. Why is that? Before the sepsis occurrence in acutely ill patients or the SOAP randomized control trials, dopamine and norepinephrine were commonly used as first-line vasopressors. SOAP-1 showed that dopamine was independently associated with increased mortality and shock. To understand this effect further, trialists completed SOAP-2, showing that in 1,679 patients with mostly septic shock randomized to either dopamine or norepinephrine, There was no difference in all-cause mortality between both groups, but that the dopamine group had a higher risk of arrhythmia. Based on their findings, leading guideline groups, such as the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, suggest to use norepinephrine as the first-line vasopressor, with vasopressin as a second-line agent, to target a mean arterial pressure, or MAP, of above 65 millimeters of mercury. And why a MAP of 65? This was studied in a landmark trial from 2014 called Sepsis-PAM, 
which randomized almost 800 patients to a MAP target of 65 to 70 versus 80 to 85 millimeters of mercury. The trial showed no major difference in mortality. In fact, another study, the 65 trial, randomized over 2,500 patients with septic shock to a permissive hypotension strategy of 60 to 65 versus 65 to 70 millimeters of mercury, which also showed no difference in mortality. For now, a MAP target of 65 millimeters of mercury remains the standard blood pressure target in patients with shock. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled, You Put Me in a State of Shock. This episode was written by Dr. Krish Billamoria, internal medicine resident. This episode is reviewed by Dr. Camille Simard, GIM and OB Medicine, as well as Dr. Jed Lipez, GIM and ICU. This episode was recorded and produced by Allison Lai. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and is executively produced by Allison Lai, Leah Karinopoulos, and Zara Morali. Theme song by Lakshman Fazantha Mohan. As always, we have an associated infographic and resources on our website at www.theinternetwork.com. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.